welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sano Genetics, and I'm really excited to be here today with Alison Watson, who's the co-founder and secretary of the Ring20 Research and Support UK patient organization, and she's also co-chair of Epicare's patient advisory group, um, which we'll get into later, but it's part of a European reference network um, that's dedicated towards providing care for rare disease patients across Europe. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today, Alison. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. Yeah, of course. So I was hoping maybe we could get started by um, you just telling a little bit of your story about how you came into your role as uh, as a parent of a child with a rare disorder and, and also your, you know, your role in advocacy and, and policy in this area. Okay, thank you, Patrick. So my story, I guess, starts with my, with my son, David, um, who was my second child and appeared to be born perfectly normally, um, reached his first milestones um, just as he should have done, um, seemingly very normal childhood development. And then when he was six years old, um, one morning we'd been out the night before and we found him slumped in his bedroom, um, looking like a, a listless rag doll, unable to, to speak or move. Um, and we rushed him off to A&E because we, we couldn't get him to respond to us. And after some various tests, the doctor said to us, we think he's had um, a seizure. Um, and we'd really not heard about epilepsy before. So we were, you know, extremely concerned and worried what was happening to our son. Um, however, after a, an initial proposed seizure, um, your child is not necessarily diagnosed with epilepsy, but we underwent some tests, EGs, um, both privately and, and through the NHS, because we wanted answers, as many, many worried parents do. And I remember one of the neurologists saying to us, perfectly normal brain for a six-year-old when he gave us the results of the EEG. Um, however, over the next sort of six months, um, David's condition um, started to deteriorate. He, he started to do some strange things. Um, he used to sit down at a, a little chair painting or colouring or whatever, and then he'd he just bolt off out of the room for no reason, as if he was after something, but there was no reason to go. And he just did some very peculiar things that were out, out of context. And then about six months later, he started to have seizures every few hours out of absolutely nowhere. We had a very sudden and severe onset of, of seizures. Um, and they were quite unusual. Um, they weren't tonic-clonic seizures, so he didn't fall on the floor and shake. But he would start to shout out and stiffen his arms and, and, and make some peculiar verbal sort of noises. Um, and these increased um, in uh, frequency from every few hours to more than hourly. He was eventually within a week or so having 25, 30 seizures every 24 hours. And uh, we, we had him, uh, took him in via A&E, who initially wanted to dismiss us um, to, to go and talk to a, 
a, a patient and, and a family and child support group um, because they thought my child was just having nightmares. Um, and we, but we just kind of knew there's that family parent instinct that something is really wrong with your child, but you don't know what. Um, and David was taken in for some further testing and the lovely um, pediatrician uh, believed that he had epilepsy and started to treat him for that. Um, what we eventually found out was that his seizures were actually due to a rare chromosome disorder. He was actually referred to Great Ormond Street Hospital from the local pediatrician because his seizures were just getting more and more frequent and more and more severe. And the, the drugs that they were treating him with, the usual antiepileptic drugs, were just, he was just not responding at all. He was getting worse. Um, and we were referred um, to a specialist centre. Um, and they actually um, put him on a course of steroids, which seemed to calm the seizures to some degree. And they had quite significant effects, actually, in calming everything down um, within a few weeks. It was a very short, sharp course. Um, but they had no idea of the cause of, of David's epilepsy. And it was only a couple of years later when we were at the local pediatrician that she said to us, oh, David's got a slightly small head and, and a little bit sticky out ears. And we thought, well, he's a seven, eight year old little boy, you know, not very different to any other little boy out there. Um, but she said, I'm going to do some tests. Um, and little did we know, and little did she know, that the result that came back was ring chromosome 20 syndrome, which is a very ultra rare epilepsy that she had never heard of before. Uh, obviously we hadn't. Um, and it, it gave some level of explanation for his seizures. Um, we were referred to a genetic counsellor um, and we got some level of information, but because it's such an ultra, ultra rare disease, there was very limited of information available. However, there was at that time uh, a patient support group that we were signposted to, um, operated out of the UK and the US at the time. And we were able to get in contact with other families who were affected uh, by the condition and to be able to share some experiences, to actually talk to somebody who was going through what we were going through and ask each other lots of questions, but maybe not find the answers um, because there's no recommended treatment for this condition. It's treatment on a trial and error basis. And actually it's a very refractory or difficult to treat epilepsy. So it, it typically just doesn't respond to any treatments. Um, so we stuck with the patient organization for a number of years which was incredibly helpful. Um, but that, for unforeseen circumstances, that patient organisation uh, eventually folded and closed. Um, and we realised very much that that family support was incredibly valuable. Um, we found out so much information uh, through channels that um, the organisation signposted us to and through talking to other families that we determined, myself and my colleague Donald Gordon, who was originally involved in the other organisation, we decided that we would need to set up a new patient organisation to reconnect families with Ring20 or R20 as we call it for short. Um, 
So we set about setting up our own charity, a completely new charity um, from scratch um, to connect families and try to establish connections with um, healthcare professionals that had an interest in the condition to see whether we could heighten awareness and start to move towards a better understanding of the, the condition and the disease and try to think about how we could improve the quality of life and the treatment for, for our loved ones uh, and all the families that we support. So that's what we set about doing just over five years ago. About five and a half years ago, we, we officially formed as a, as a charity. So we're relatively new, um, quite small. Um, we, we, we operate um, effectively around a kitchen table in a small office in, 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 in the home. Um, but we support over 100 families worldwide um, today. Uh, we are the only patient organisation for this condition globally. Um, so we have um, families that contact us from all corners of the globe, um, from all over the UK, across Europe, right across to Australia and the US and South America uh, even. And the power of the internet is incredible because we, we have Facebook groups and Facebook page um, as well as a website. Um, so people will, will find us one way or another. Um, and even those that cannot speak English as an, uh, um, even as a second language um, will try to contact us and we just use Google Translate um, to try and understand each other and, and help each other. Um, which when you're so isolated and there's no one else to help you um, is, is hugely beneficial. You support about 100 families and, and that is it's truly an ultra rare disorder. Do you have any estimates? I mean, I, I know I've heard you speak before at one of our events and you suspect that the condition is actually underdiagnosed. Do you have any clue as to how many families there might be worldwide that are affected by R20? So according to medical literature, the most least recent uh, literature reviews have cited that there are around 150 cases of Ring20 worldwide. Um, that suggests, given the number of families that are in contact with us, and those are only the families that choose to connect and find a patient organisation, um, and the locations of those families, um, suggests that not only is the disease very underreported in medical literature, um, it's very underdiagnosed. Um, uh, and we, we perceive it's um, very underdiagnosed because it's very difficult to, to diagnose ring chromosome 20 syndrome. Um, and most diagnoses, um, according to our families, and as we heard in my specific case with my son, uh, happen by chance. They're not a deliberate um, attempt to to look for ring chromosome 20 syndrome. Um, so there are a number, there are over 130 um, rare and complex epilepsies, so there are very, very many of them. Um, and most genetic um, epilepsies um, are, try, are attempted to be diagnosed by running standard um, gene panel testing. Um, so exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing, um, or CGH array is often used. 
Now, um, these sorts of techniques, and you know way more about this than I do, um, are looking for duplications and deletions and additions, changes in the DNA. Um, unfortunately, at this particular stage, they cannot detect a ring chromosome. So a chromosome that is formed from a linear form um, and the two ends are joined together to form a ring. And you have to actually go back to an older form of testing, which is less routinely used these days, particularly in Western medicine, um, which is carrier typing. Um, typically used for detecting chromosome disorders uh, historically. Um, but because, as in my son's case, and this is quite typical of the signs and symptoms of Ring20, the disease doesn't present at birth, as many chromosome disorders do, um, there's no reason to suspect a chromosome disorder. Um, very, very typically, these children, uh, they're born perfectly normally, um, they uh, physically look like any other baby or a normal child. Um, they reach all of the, the childhood milestones at the appropriate stages. Um, there is absolutely no reason to detect there's anything wrong with them in their first few years of life. And there's somewhere between the ages of typically four to ten years, although some children are younger and some have been older. Um, they will start with this very sudden and severe onset of seizures, and, and that's when. Um, the disease shows its true colours, I guess. How long did it take you to become an expert in this? I mean, uh, it's uh, so. So if we go back to when your son was diagnosed, I know. I know. My understanding is you're actually still working um, as a business analyst. So you have a, you know, you have a entirely separate career from your work as as part of the uh, the charity. What what made you decide to actually? dive headlong into this as a essentially a second career you've, you've been retrained as a you know as a scientist in some respect yeah i guess that's that's quite flattering to kind of hear it in that in that sense but it's that yearning as a parent to to want to understand what's actually happening to your child um and when you're talking to your child's doctors and they can't explain it to you um, or the nurses that, that the epilepsy nurses that you're seeing and you look on the internet and the information isn't there that you I guess I'm just a very inquisitive nature as you say I'm a business analyst by profession so um, I have a very logical mind and I, I, I like to step my way through a problem to try and find the answers and I guess um, that approach has, has moved into my voluntary work and and it's as much my voluntary work, but it's also about trying to understand what's happening to my son and then try to solve that problem to see, well, is there any information out there that could help him and could help him and, and others that, that are suffering in the same way that he, he is. Um, and it, yeah, I, I do feel that I, I can't stop until I've exhausted a number of avenues really um so, because so, it's so important yeah absolutely and and i mean i i i feel like you must imagine that if you know if you don't do it then who will right to some extent there's you know as you say there's thousands of rare and ultra rare disorders and it's very challenging for the healthcare system to you know to, to understand everything so if you feel like 
you you go to see your doctor and you know they've seen dozens of other people that day and they can't you know they 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 just aren't able to go as deep as you might be able to right here and you have such a motivation to do it yeah that's 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 really it it's you have such limited time when you go to see see the doctor or the specialist and you have so many questions as as a as a parent with a child or or even an, an adult that's diagnosed with a with a really rare disease and they have such limited time with you um, and they will focus on treating your symptoms because that's their primary care aim is to try and make you better in some way. Um, so they will focus on the treatments, the drugs that they might want to give you, the medicines, the tests that need to be done. They don't have time to explain what's happening um, in terms of the, the disease. Um, and so you have to go and find that out for yourself. And really, when you've got a really ultra rare disease, when you're talking to the doctor and the doctor doesn't actually know much more than you do, in actual fact, once you become an expert patient, you, you can get to a situation where you actually know more than the doctor that's treating your child in terms of the the condition that you're that you're do, dealing with because you've read all the medical literature right. um, you, your pediatrician your pediatric neurologist your neurologist will not have read every medical article on ring chromosome 20 um, because because they won't have had time to do that um, so you know if you've got an analytical mind you can start to understand and assimilate that information um, and and kind of work through the the findings and then you the the best situation for for families uh, that I would suggest from my own experience is to build that relationship with your healthcare professionals that are treating you um, and to work together in trying to solve the problem um, what in these situations the, the doctors won't have all the answers and that's okay yeah. um, I think we all um, set doctors up to be absolute gods and they we have to kind of remember that they're human beings just like we are and with six seven eight thousand rare diseases we can't expect them to know everything about every single condition um, that, that may come across their table so I think on both sides we have to accept that I won't have all the answers and it's okay for them to tell us that and we will not think any less of them right. um, because they don't have all that information at their fingertips and they don't have the answer about we'll take this pill and that will make you better um, yeah, but absolutely. what we really appreciate as, as families I think is the doctor saying okay I'm not sure about that or I don't have that information but I'll try and find out for you right. and I think a, a, a doctor that's that's willing to either try and find out or to work with you or to discuss with you well we could try this treatment or we could try that treatment these are the pros and cons or the, the side effects and potential benefits but this is what might not work and you talk about it together and you work through it together based on your own situation because in many of these cases your own situation is quite unique and um, with something as rare as ring 20 
you're likely to be the only case that your doctor has ever seen in in their history and will probably ever see in their lifetime so you know it's a collaborative thing and i guess one of the you mentioned the, the power of the internet earlier and also the you know groups like like yours the amazing thing that you can do is bring families together to share that information whether it's digitally or my understanding is you're working on a a physical real world event as well but to actually get families in the same room to to say oh yeah my son had the same experience or my experience was different like you said earlier the the fact that you your son was prescribed steroids and it had a, a, a dramatic and really positive effect that's uh, you know that's potentially a really important piece of information for another family uh, you know to, to share whether it's online or through in-person events yeah absolutely I mean it is so vitally important um, to, to connect with other families for that mutual support and there's only so much that you can do through emails and, and phone calls so um, we've been raising some some funds to bring together a a workshop um, in November um, in Birmingham and we are hoping that as many of our families that can travel to attend because all of them will be many many miles away from wherever we host a workshop uh, but the idea the purpose behind the workshop is to create some patient information literature um, so alongside bringing those families together so they can share their experiences and they can talk to each other and say and actually see that their child does the same as your child when they're having <coughs> these these children typically have um, multiple seizures daily so they will have seizures during um, this this workshop but it's an okay and a very safe environment um, and and when you see that they're having the same types of seizures then you really can feel that you're not alone and that's really really important but the big purpose of the workshop, as I said, was to create a patient information booklet because that just doesn't exist for Wing20. Um, so we provide a lot of information on our website. Um, we signpost to lots of medical literature or uh, research articles or any information about the disease and try to, to share as much on social media. But what our families say to us is when they're first diagnosed, they're given very little if any information on the condition they don't know what to expect they don't understand what the diagnosis means they don't know how their child's going to be treated they don't know how to best care and manage their child what's safe what's um but also thinking about the can-do attitude and not being an overprotective parent and stopping your child or as they grow into into adults you know stopping them having an independent life and allowing them alongside having daily seizures or, or, or multiple seizures per week very debilitating disease but actually letting them have a true quality of life and getting out there and having friends and, and socializing and getting involved in sports and activities it's about what you can do if you do it safely with the right support and how and where you can get support and why that's really really important to, to get that support network around you whether that's emotional financial support um, so we want to create this booklet and to create a really um, 
fun atmosphere for our parents, we're going to do it in comic book style. Oh, great. Um, so we're sharing an idea that's been brought to us by some other um, rare disease charities who've used this before and it's found to be really, really powerful. So we're bringing along a comic illustrator who will bring wow. to life all our family's ideas. So this will be an information booklet created by families, for families. They will create the content. We will have some healthcare professionals uh, on site to answer any sort of slightly medical questions so that we don't provide any inaccuracies. Yeah. But we're not there to advise. You know, it's about day-to-day -day life living with the Ring 20 and what to expect. Um, and all those ideas will be brought to life with illustrations. And what we will do post the workshop is to create a project for our young adults um, who will come together and they will help edit the final booklet and decide what actually goes into it and how it comes together and then we will we will hope to publish and, and print the booklets and give them out to all of our existing families um, to share um, and, and for new families as well and we really do need this to be in print format because it needs to be a coffee table booklet if you like right. it needs to be something that can be picked up and shared. People need to be able to say, hey, what's that? That looks really interesting. And they can learn about Ring20. So that might be other people within the family, carers, um, schools, um, friends. They can take it to show their doctor, right? And show their doctors as well, because their doctors won't understand any of this. And this, this will be made from anecdotal evidence from families who are living with this disease day to day. So, that's it's right. Got to be right. So, how how many families are you expecting to attend? Do you have a, a rough estimate? Well, we would love to have something like um, fifteen or so families to right. attend. Which, with the sort of numbers that that, that we have, um, you know, over a hundred worldwide, but we're actually only supporting something like about thirty of those families in the UK. Now, this will be open to families outside of the UK, and some of those across just across the water in Europe. Uh, you know, it's just as easy and cheap to get a flight across. So we, we're hoping some of those will pop over and come and see us as well. We'll, uh, we'll definitely share out the, the fundraising information because, uh, I mean, I, I think in terms of the kind of impact that a donation can have, this, you know, this is a life-changing kind of thing for the families that attend. And also there's a ripple effect of the creation of the book that is going to help, as you say, educate friends, educate other family, educate... Um, you know, someone's healthcare professionals that they work with. So, you know, I, I think, for, I'm sure there are people out there that would want to help support to, you know, get, if it's flights or trains or, or even accommodation, it's a, it's a two day event. Is that right? We will definitely share it out. Yeah. So we do. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, there is no way we could have a one day or a half day event because our families just, you know, it, it would take them too long to travel to to the venue. So, um, you know, we are having to look at accommodating them overnight and any help towards enabling some of those families to, to travel and, and to attend, um, particularly those that might be more financially challenged. And some of these families, you know, their children can be quite disabled. I'm very lucky that my son is, even though he has several seizures per day, we've got quite a good support network. And, and um, so I am able to work. Um, but some of our families 
have had to give up work um, to look after, to care for their child 24 seven um, because of the condition and, and the level of support that they require. And, and therefore financially, it might be quite difficult for them to come for an overnight stay um, and to travel. So, what you know, the, we could, they're the, and they're the ones that would most, most yeah. benefit really. What does your son do? What's, uh, he's, is he 17? He's, no, he's 22 now. 22 now. <gasps> wow. Yeah. <laughs> so is, yeah. He, uh, is, is he, he's able to work and... Well, no, he's still at college at this yeah. stage. Um, he's still studying. Um, uh, he's studying animation. Oh, great. Into um, some fun stuff. Um, but it is, it has been, he's been staying in education for a number of years because it has proven quite challenging for him to try to find employment. Um, when he's attempted to make applications for jobs um, and even got to an interview stage when the employers have actually found out about his epilepsy and that he does have daily seizures, um, in many cases they have said that they have been unable to take on the risk oh, of, supporting, um, of supporting him. And even though he's quite capable of doing some work and he absolutely wants to work in the future, um, it, it is going to be quite a challenge that we're going to have to work together to try and find um, an employer that would be able to put appropriate support in place um, to accommodate David's needs and to allow him to contribute to society, which is absolutely what he wants to do. And he absolutely doesn't want to sit at home and have nothing to do every day. He needs a purpose in life and he wants to eventually live more independently away from us. Um, but that will have to be in supported living um, because he does have seizures at night and they are occasionally tonic clinic, which runs a high risk of SUDEP which is sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. So you cannot leave somebody alone in that situation. Um, but he, he wants his own life and you know, we will do everything to try and help him achieve that, that goal. Of course. Yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't seem right with the employment thing. I, I, yeah, it feels like that shouldn't, that shouldn't be a barrier, especially for you know, a talented young person who you know, who wants to work and is willing to work. Yeah, it's unfortunately, speaking to the many families that I do, affected by Ring20 and other rare epilepsies, um, or I say rare epilepsies, you know, where the epilepsies are, are not controlled and um, the seizures are quite frequent. This is a very common um, situation um, for, for those young adults who really, really want to work and really would love to put their talents to the best use and could be the greatest assets to some employers because they will probably be some of the most hardworking and diligent um, young people that you could probably employ because they want to work um, and they want to prove that they can what they can do and show you what they can do. But unfortunately, it's, it's very, very challenging in, in today's society when there are maybe 50 or 100 people going for the same job um, to, for employers to take on the risk and, and 
in terms of then mitigating that risk, they then have to put maybe additional support in place, which may cost them financially, and they're not willing to necessarily do that for somebody who has a physical disability, such as um, seizures, um, when they could employ somebody who, for whom they don't have to provide that level of support. And that's a very sad reflection on society today. Um, and, you know, I would love to speak to employers to help change their perception on what some of these young people can contribute. Wondering, in addition to your work on Ring20, you're also very involved with the European Reference Network uh, patient advisory group um, focused around rare epilepsies. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that and, and the importance of these kind of organizations for patients with rare diseases across Europe. So about two and a half years ago, um, for those people that, that don't know, um, 24 European reference networks, or ERNs as they're known for short, were created for different groupings of uh, the different um, rare disease conditions, um, of which one of those groups um, is Epicare, which is the ERN for rare and complex epilepsies. It's, it should be broken up into different groups, right? Because there's so many different, uh, different challenges, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Epicare was evolved because there are 130 um, plus rare and complex epilepsies um, defined at, at this point in time. And whilst epilepsy is considered to be a common condition, um, it's actually many, many diseases. It's a bit like saying cancer is one Absolutely. condition. And, and it, it's not, Absolutely it's many, not. many different diseases. Um, so if we think about it in, in that way, the, the rare and complex epilepsies are about a third of the people in the world who have epilepsy who have a very difficult to treat um, symptoms. And also they will have um, other symptoms other than just seizures. So well, seizures will be the key symptom to their disease. They may experience many other different types of, of, of symptoms. Um, very typically around learning and behaviour difficulties but can be associated with all other types of what we call comorbidities. So I was asked um, to join the patient advocacy group um, as part of Epicare. So as patient advocates or the EPAG groups, European patient advocacy groups, um, we are asked uh, to join as equal partners um, alongside the healthcare professionals and the researchers um, that bring these reference networks together. Um, and we're there to provide the patient perspective, the patient voice um, to the work that they're doing. Ultimately, the reference networks are there for the benefit of the patients that they serve. Um, they're there to improve understanding across the healthcare profession, across Europe, these really rare diseases, um, given the, the, the rarity and the scarcity of patients, the knowledge um, doesn't always exist at your local hospital or even within your own country. Um, the specialist expertise to diagnose or treat or manage your disease may be in a completely different European country. And European reference networks provide the vehicle to allow that knowledge to travel um, rather than the patient having to travel. Right, and it's so essential, right? Because the 
if, if you're, uh, you know, if the expertise is in the United Kingdom, for instance, but the patient is in Finland or is in Italy or wherever the expert is not, then it's essential to not have to travel across borders or, you know, or, or to, for the doctors to have to, um, you know, set up clinics in different places. We can, can share this information across the network. It's a much, much more cost-effective model um, and is also uh, much more efficient and effective for both the patients and the doctors themselves. Um, they utilise something called CPMS, for, um, which is Clinical Patient Management Systems, um, whereby they can have virtual consultations between different doctors in different countries who might be specialists in a particular disease when they can discuss cases and provide guidance to the local doctors or the local hospitals treating um, that patient. Um, so that's, that's really, really important. And it also creates borders without boundaries. This is another right. phrase of the ERNs, is that um, you know, it doesn't matter which country you live in or how um, uh, financially rich that country might be, or whether you, you would get the best treatment in, in your country or you can afford um, to see the best doctors, you know, everybody should have equal access to healthcare, the best healthcare um, that they can. And with ERNs, we're moving towards creating that level, bit more level equality of um, ensuring that patient comes to some of the, the poorer countries as well as the, uh, those that, um, you know, uh, have more provision available. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what a, what a, it's it's such an important mission, isn't it? We the, we've made a lot of progress. It seems like in research and rare disease, and and there are quite a few breakthrough treatments. But if these don't make it to everyone in the world, then it's really a missed opportunity, right? We'd hate to uh, to change the system for the better, but then have it only only actually help the top ten percent of people that happen to be born in the right place. Yeah, I, I you know. Research is there to be shared, and I know that's not always historically what appears to happen. Um, but in the really rare diseases and in the rare disease community, it's absolutely imperative that research information is shared um, because the best knowledge may be spread across Europe or, or even across the world, and the best minds can come together um, to take things forward and take the next steps and and one doctor or one researcher in one country may hear about a particular disease or a particular scenario and that may trigger a thought process and they may have um, a, a new treatment that they've been looking at that might be uh, appropriate or, or some new diagnostic testing um, that they have available within their centre that's not available elsewhere because it's state-of-the-art new technology those sorts of things um, and it's providing access to the best resources whether that's people um, whether that's equipment um, whether that's knowledge um, and, and and getting that across to the patients um, but coming back to the whole sort of EPAG and our contribution um, to to the reference networks um, the doctors um, who set up uh, Epicare devised a structure by which they would devise the, the work that would be undertaken 
and they've devised it into um, therapeutic and, and diagnostic modules that they would look at in different ways. And um, so they have different themes though, um, because we're associated with epilepsy. Um, there's the sort of genetic diagnosis, there's looking at EGs and MRIs and, and uh, psychology. And, and then we have um, treatments, looking for targeted medical therapies, dietary treatments, um, and also looking at, at research and, and clinical trials um, that can perhaps be undertaken in wider groups of um, rare epilepsies rather than specific diseases, which is typically what happens with, with research and clinical trials that you focus on a single disease. Now, where this in terms of patient benefit, um, that can be really um, incredibly powerful for the really ultra-rare diseases and also help the more common rare diseases as well because we can all share in the funding and the knowledge of trying to create new research um, that's more joined up that could potentially benefit a wider patient community by looking at a, a wider cohort of patients that share in similar symptoms but maybe have slightly different underlying um disease diagnoses um, but but you could still find potentially a, a treatment that could benefit all of those and that's quite a novel approach um, but from a patient perspective many many patients and families would, would want that because they potentially could see more significant and faster advances in medicine um, yeah, and improvements in, together, right? yeah if, you know and it's ultimately I don't think any of us are really looking up for a cure we, we would all love to have a cure but I think we're realistic enough to 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 know that that's that's a great strategic goal but you know that's huge but we would like to find better treatment treatment that allows the individuals to lead the best lives that they can to have the best health without all of the side effects uh, of, 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 treat, of treatments and, and, and different medications you know if they can improve that and improve overall quality of life then that has to be um, what's the ultimate benefit of patients. So That's, uh, It's such an important role of the patient advisory groups, right? Because sometimes, uh, you know, as a, as a scientist, you can get, you know, you can get lost in the details and, and without having the grounding of the actual patient that your, you know, that your research is focused on to say, these are the most important problems to us. And, uh, you know, and, and as you say, Cure is a you know is is a big decades long challenge, and so what can we be doing in the meantime to work our way closer? Yeah, we we, we work as as our EPAG patient advocacy group. We we work alongside the doctors as equal partners. We work alongside their work packages. We um, contribute to ideas and suggestions. We even create have created our own ideas and suggestions. So. We're now working to create patient information leaflets for healthcare professionals, um, working alongside the doctors on that, um, as well as um, a new initiative. We're looking to introduce some educational webinars and we will be working uh, very much in collaboration 
Um, there will be some very medical um, related topic areas, but there will also be topic areas and themes that will relate to patients and families that's really key and useful information that's not currently in the public domain. Um, there's a lot of information on epilepsy generally and how to manage your epilepsy. But when you're talking about somebody with a very complex epilepsy and very complex condition, there are perhaps more factors that you have to consider and further sort of safety aspects that are perhaps more heightened and, and um, need, need closer attention. And as patient advocates, we can bring the experience because many of us um, are um, leaders of patient associations across Europe for different rare epilepsies, like myself, and a couple of the um, ladies within our group are also patients themselves. So we have huge experience and knowledge of um, living with these conditions and what actually affects patients and families. And what we also have the information from our community, wider community, about what the community believes would make their lives better. So we try to bring that to the table um, and work with the doctors to see whether we can achieve something along those lines. Yeah, um, it has to be together, doesn't it? Without all the pieces, yeah. place, it can't be done. Well, look, it's, uh, I just think it's incredible the amount, of, uh, the amount you've been able to accomplish in five years. And hopefully we'll, we'll share out information about some of the um, uh, fundraising opportunities with Ring20 and, and also more information about the work you've done as part of the ERN. So um, just like to say thanks for, it's been a, it's been a really great conversation. Hopefully every, everyone listening has learned about a new condition that they might not have uh, heard of before and also some of the challenges with ultra rare diseases in general so thank you thank you very much patrick <laughs>